I'm David. I'm Sam. And this is Trey. So how are you doing on this uh, fine Tuesday morning? Um, I'm feeling pretty tired. There's been a lot going on here over the past few days. I assume you're talking about the baseball game that happened last night? Baseball game? Well, Los Angeles is playing Houston. Uh, You should know about this, David, because the Jewish internet was ablaze with news that Alex Bregman, the third baseman for the Houston Astros, is the first Jewish player to hit a walk-off hit. Um, this is the first time that a Jewish person ever hit a run like that? No, no, hit a walk-off hit in the World Series. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, that was your biannual Sam Sports Corner. I hope you all enjoyed it. <laughs> but Sam, have you managed to keep up with everything that's been going on this past week? Not entirely. I feel like I've caught on to the major threads, but there's still some things that have squeaked by me. Yeah, for, for people who don't live in Montreal and don't follow everything related to Jewish politics on a minute-to-minute basis, shame. Uh, this past week has been exhausting to keep up with. Some might even say it was a roller coaster. Yeah. Um, so where do you want to start with this? I think it might be good to start with the legislation in the Quebec National Assembly. This bill, Bill 62, is a new law that requires people to uncover their faces when giving or receiving public services. Yeah, I mean, we, we mentioned this on the show last week, and it was a big part of the inspiration for today's show. Uh, the bill is specifically targeting Muslim women who wear the niqab, and it's the product of an Islamophobic climate that's been building here for over a decade. But David, before we go into this in any more depth, which we are going to do in the remainder of this podcast and in future podcasts, can you give a quick hit of some other things that have been happening? Yeah, so to tie this back into the angle of Jewish politics, to say that institutional Jewish groups have been silent on this would be an understatement. The day that this bill was passed, the representatives of the main Jewish institutions, the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs, B'nai B'rith Canada, their main representatives were in Ottawa testifying against a motion condemning Islamophobia that was passed after the mosque shooting. Meanwhile, B'nai B'rith was on red alert attacking popular member of the National Assembly in Quebec, Amir Kadir, for mentioning the existence of the Israeli lobby in Canada. Yeah, and so while Jewish groups are focused on attacking leftist students for advocating for BDS or attacking Muslims, there's no shortage of actual anti-Semitism in the city of Montreal. And it's crickets from these institutional groups. So, for example, in Outremont, the incumbent mayor, Denis Coderre, the election's on November 5th, for those who are keeping track, is running this fellow named Jean-Marc Corbet against Hasidic councilwoman Mindy Pollack in Outremont. The first elected Hasidic councillor in Quebec, I think. And David, what is so problematic about Mr. Corbet? I think a fair description of him is openly anti-Semitic. He's part of a white Quebecois bloc in Outremont that has dominated the borough council and has been actively going after the Hasidic population in Outremont, trying to push them out. Every couple of months, there's some new campaign or effort to stop new synagogues from being built to push the Hasids out of that community. Yeah, and we're not going to go into too much more detail because we have an interview with Mindy Pollack scheduled. Uh, But all this is to say that it seems like there's an intentional looking away from the steady increase in far-right organizing that is primarily targeting Muslim people, but is also targeting Jewish people. Actually, the chair of the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs said that Jews should stop overreacting about the increase in hate speech we're seeing from the far-right right now. So, David, I think this is a back and forth that could continue for the rest of the day. <laughs> and I and I think it's necessary to intervene at this juncture <laughs> okay. to uh, mention that we interviewed two people on these very subjects. Yeah. So after Bill 62 was passed, we sort of put down everything we were working on and decided we wanted to do an episode that sort of took a step back and would give people context for what is actually going on here. So this week's episode is divided into two parts. Uh, We chatted with Hoda Asal, who's a historian and researcher and a wonderful human being, about the history of anti-Arab racism in Quebec and links it to the rise of Islamophobia in the last 20 years. And we were also really interested in the big surge in far-right organizing that we're seeing right now. And so we spoke with someone who's been an active part of movements combating the far right in Quebec for the last 30 years. Due to the nature of this work, we're only going to be referring to him as Alex. Yes, David. So this is your episode of Trafe for the 13th of Cheshvan, 5778. 
My name is Alex and I have been politically active for decades in Montreal. In the 1990s I was active doing anti-fascist work and like a lot of people who did anti-fascist work at that time, that work segued into other stuff which I've kind of been doing for the past 10 or 20 years and just with the current rise of the far right reorienting back to anti-fascism. Uh, well thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. So to start off, for, for people who are living outside of Quebec, I, I know it's a big question, but can you maybe give people a bit of context for the current far-right organizing that's happening? Yeah, sure. I mean, I'll give a little bit of context. Like, Quebec has to be understood as a completely different society than English Canada or, you know, the various societies within the United States or elsewhere in North America. People here speak a different language, by and large. They have a different history, by and large, and a different identity. One part of this separate society is that you have a nationalist movement here, a movement that has been active wanting Quebec to have its own state. This nationalist movement in the 1960s, 1970s was seen as a progressive movement. Most people on the left at the time would have considered themselves in favor of Quebec independence, might have even called themselves nationalist. At the time, Quebec adopted a policy of preferring immigrants to Quebec who spoke French, and this meant that you had large numbers of people, relatively speaking, from North Africa who moved to Quebec and who were seen as ideal immigrants in many ways. What happened is over the years, many of the economic reasons why people in Quebec felt that they were oppressed or that they needed a separate state were resolved within Canada. And instead, various nationalist groups started looking for new uh, new conflicts, new issues to build their politics around. And identity and cultural identity became more and more important. In the context of 9-11... This quickly took an increasingly rabid, Islamophobic character. A nodal point for this was reached a few years ago when the Parti Québécois, historically the main nationalist provincial political party here, tried to float what they called a Charter of Quebec Values, which essentially was an Islamophobic charter that would not allow public servants, civil servants, to wear any ostentatious religious symbols. There were clear exceptions made for symbols having to do with Christianity. And although other groups, for instance, Jews and Sikhs, were also targeted, it was really built on Islamophobia. In this context, you saw a smattering of far-right groups. Uh, you've seen a smattering of far-right groups active here since the 1990s. Small groups, you know, last year they tried several times to organize demonstrations. Maybe two or three people would show up on their side against maybe dozens or even hundreds on our side. So it was, from our perspective, the far right was a very marginal phenomenon. Then Donald Trump was elected, which was seen, I think, for people with racist or xenophobic politics throughout the world as a big sign of encouragement. In that context, both of Quebec's increasing Islamophobia and Trump having recently been elected, on January 29th, a man entered the Islamic Cultural Center in Quebec City, which is a mosque in the Saint-Foy neighborhood, which had previously been targeted by Islamophobic harassment for over a year. You know, hate mail being left, a severed pig's head being left at the door of the mosque, pamphlets distributed in Quebec City claiming that the mosque was a terrorist front. And on January 29th, this campaign of harassment reached its climax when somebody entered the mosque and opened fire. Six people were killed, uh, 19 people were injured. It was the most deadly so-called hate crime in Canada since the Polytechnique massacre. And could you speak a bit about, uh, I think it'd be useful to give people a bit of a timeline since the mosque shooting about what's actually been happening here. One would normally expect that after a racist mass murder, you would see an upsurge in anti-racist sentiment, or one would hope. 
and that those who were responsible for this climate in which these murders occurred might feel a bit embarrassed and might take a step back. Uh, if that happened, that whole thing ran its course within 24 hours because very quickly, obscenely, what you saw is a dramatic upsurge in far-right activity in Quebec. On March 4th, this took physical form. An individual by the name of George Halak, one of these oddballs who the far-right attracts, he just called demonstrations across Canada on March 4th, including in towns and cities that he didn't even know anyone, and just told people to come out to protest against M103, which was a private member's bill denouncing Islamophobia, basically a do-nothing bill following in the mosque killings. Throughout Canada, at most of these little rallies that Halak had called, either nobody showed up or two or three people showed up. On March 4th in Quebec, there were a number of demonstrations which attracted dozens of people. In Montreal, hundreds of people. In Quebec City, hundreds of people. In a sense, March 4th was the coming out party for the far right in Quebec. The main groups that came out were La Meute, which is French for the Wolf Pack, Quebec's largest racist organization at the moment, which was founded just two years ago, which has at least thousands of members. It claims to have tens of thousands. The Front Patriotique de Québec, a tiny little group. And you had the Storm Alliance, Soldiers of Odin, and other similar groups. So, you know, that was a shock to... Those of us who showed up to demonstrate against them, we were a few hundred in Montreal. We expected to massively outnumber them as we always had in the past. Instead, the numbers were roughly equal and we couldn't stop them from marching. Another shock came on April 23rd. The small group that I mentioned before, the Front Patriotique de Québec, which most of us had never heard of. They called a demonstration against the government. Again, we thought maybe a few dozen would show up. There were hundreds of people who showed up in Montreal, many of whom were armed with clubs, you know, decked out for a fight. Police kept them separate from us, though our numbers were much smaller than theirs. So that too was a shock. On July 1st, this group, the Storm Alliance, called for a mobilization at the border, and dozens of anti-immigrant protesters showed up. We were also there, people from Solidarity Across Borders, Anti-Racist, Anti-Fascist Response Committee had organized a counter-demo. But these kinds of mobilizations are the kinds of things that we hadn't seen. I've been active here since the 80s. I'd never seen anything like this in Quebec. And then, in a sense, the latest thing that occurred was August 20th, where Lamette said they were holding a demonstration in Quebec City. There was a very large mobilization on our part, because people have gotten up to speed about what's going on. But there was also a large mobilization on their part. It was shocking. Hundreds of people showed up for Lemet's demonstration and not only showed up, but acted in a very disciplined manner, making it, by some measures, the largest far-right mobilization in Canada since the 1930s. So I'm really, I'm really curious because I, I was born in 1987. Uh, so I was not around during the 80s and 90s anti-fascist movement. And I'm wondering how the far right groups that are organizing now in Quebec compare to the groups that were organizing in the 80s and 90s or, or what the differences are. Well, it's, a, it's you know, there's a, a number of ways that that question could be answered. I mean, in the 1980s, I was a teenager. Um, my awareness of the far right came about you know, very quickly when a bunch of Nazi boneheads crashed a party I was organizing. In Montreal at the time, so far as I was aware in the 80s, that was the main threat. Boneheads had, a, or skinheads as, you know, some of your listeners may know of them, had a very real street presence and were involved just in beating people up. So it was very much violence against kids who were not white, uh, violence against queers, and violence against the left. It was scary, and it wasn't very much fun. I know that there were a number of groups that we would probably today 
term far right, but at the time it, it wasn't necessarily as clear. As I said, most people on the left at the time within Quebec would have considered themselves nationalists in favor of Quebec independence. And so you had a lot of narratives and a lot of discourse, which in retrospect seems ambiguous or even worse, but at the time was being said by people who felt and saying this, they were a part of the left. Things like Le Québec au Québécois, which I remember going to an anarchist demonstration, and that was the chant that everyone was chanting. In retrospect, though, what we see is that that discourse did create space for the far right in the 1990s. I mean, that, in a sense, is where things came to a head, both in Quebec and English Canada. There was a neo-Nazi group called the Heritage Front, which was set up in Toronto, and which ended up trying to form a chapter in Montreal, tried and failed, but it required several mobilizations. And there remained this Nazi bonehead scene, uh, which killed people. Uh, Yves Lalonde was a jogger who was assumed to be gay, who was murdered in 1992 while jogging in Anquignois Park. There was a kid who was killed in La Chute by Nazi boneheads. There was a woman who was killed in Laval by Nazi boneheads. So these groups were dangerous and were real, but they were much, much, much smaller than the groups today. And they also had much more extreme politics and were willing to engage in much more extreme tactics than the groups that I just mentioned. So to bring this conversation a little bit back to the present, it seems like one way that the mainstream narrative could go is in isolating these far-right groups. But it does seem that a lot of the ideas underpinning groups like La Meute are represented in by the state and by like popular opinion. I mean, whenever uh, far-right politics leave the tiny group level, whenever they stop being a matter of a few boneheads who might kill you, and they become a matter of hundreds or even thousands of people, it's in relationship to something larger going on in society. It's not for nothing that the far right expanded very quickly in the early 1990s following the Oka crisis. At the time, Muslims were not on the radar as enemy number one. It was indigenous people and specifically Mohawk people who were on the radar as enemy number one and who were attacked. And so it's not for nothing, like I said, that it's following the beginning of the so-called war on terror that you see this rapid rise in Islamophobia in Quebec which was taken advantage of by the ADQ, the CAC, the PQ, and by the Liberal Party in a sense. So all of these political parties saw that there was potential for them to profit from this Islamophobia by making Muslims public enemy number one. And they did so one after another, playing political football with this, and it reached like I said, a climax with the Charter of Quebec Values, with the PQ, which basically put Islamophobia on steroids, made it not only mainstream, but made it something backed by the provincial government. And it was only due to all of these various people who live in Quebec who don't identify with this narrow, white, francophone, Catholic or post-Catholic identity, who marched in the streets, who wrote letters to newspapers. There were community institutions which basically said they would not follow this charter if it became law. And it's only because of that that didn't become law, but the genie was, in a sense, out of the bottle. Islamophobia had become a central component of politics in Quebec. The, the thing with the far right and the state is that you repeatedly have this dynamic of specific sectors of the state encouraging these kinds of politics because they profit from them and they're very useful to the state. But these politics also exist autonomously from the state. And as such, you know, the people who join Lamet, the people who join Soldiers of Odin, uh, they, they have ideas of their own. They have an agenda of their own. And they often feel bitterly let down by the state. You know, they believe the propaganda, all of these lies about Muslims, and then they ask the obvious question, well, if all of this is true, why isn't the government doing something? And the government isn't doing something because generally none of this stuff is true. So 
Lameth is hoping to mainstream. They don't want to enter a political party, I don't think, and they don't want to tie themselves directly to one political party, but they want to represent a constituency so that they will have meetings with politicians, they want to have a seat at the table. Other groups are more ambivalent. You know, the groups I'm describing, they're far right and they're definitely racist, but groups like La Meute and Storm Alliance, they're not fascist. You do have a small fascist core in Quebec, which they, in a sense, have a far more realistic view of the state than these other larger organizations. And while they might be interested in using the state for certain purposes, their goal is to overthrow the state. They just want to replace it with something worse. So the I guess what groups like Lamet would describe as their their concern about immigration and Islam that concern seems to actually be resonating in parts of Quebec at least according to public opinion polls that are circulating in the mainstream media right now what what do you make of that resonance and why do you think that's happening Well like I said I think that you know you have a greater context you have the international context which is the conflict between countries like Canada and the United States, large parts of the world, which takes the form of this war against terror, so-called. You have more recently the Charter of Quebec Values. It's not only made Islamophobia mainstream, in some sections of society, it's more acceptable to be Islamophobic than it is to be anti-racist. You know, people who don't consider themselves particularly political, who believe all of this crap, it's a very dangerous situation, and it's a dangerous situation in part because we know that there's, in a sense, no limit to how far these things can go. It's not like common sense provides some kind of boundary, and, well, they're not going to do that, or they're not going to think that, because we know from history that there is no limit when it comes to this kind of stuff. It can lead to people being disenfranchised. It's already led to people being killed. You know, after the murders in the mosque, the car belonging to the president of the mosque was firebombed. After the murders in the mosque, hate literature was spread throughout Quebec City claiming that the mosque is a terrorist front. You know, there's no reason to believe that what emotionally makes sense to expect, which is that things will just calm down, or that the bad guys will see they've gone too far and they'll like back off. There's no reason to believe that that's got to be the case. What do you think the role of the media is in that? Well, the media, similar to the political parties that I mentioned earlier, has really enjoyed Islamophobia. It's been a way to sell newspapers. It's been a way to sell advertising space on TV. You have many journalists who've made a career out of bashing the left and bashing Muslims. And it's definitely had an effect. You have the so-called Radio Poubelle, or in the United States they refer to it as hate radio, which is a main component of the media landscape around Quebec City. It's, it's not a good thing. Before we let you go, I guess I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how the situation in Quebec compares to the rest of Canada or what's going on in the U.S. Like, I understand that's a big question, um, but are there things that have stood out to you that, that differentiate far-right organizing in Quebec from the rest of Canada and or the United States? On an intellectual level, the far-right in Quebec has always been more influenced by the far-right in Europe than, for instance, the English-Canadian far-right, which is far, far more influenced, obviously, by the far-right in the United States. So you have a lot of intellectual influences on the far-right, which only come into English North America relatively recently, over the past 10 years, or even over the past few years, which have been firmly a part of the thinking amongst Quebec fascists for, you know, 20 or 30 years. Uh, things like, you know, the idea of like ethnopluralism, human biodiversity, all of these catchwords for sanitized racism, which the alt-right in the United States has just started using over the past couple of years. That's because the texts which laid that stuff out were first written in French and have only been translated over the past few years. Well, I mean, people have been reading them here since the 1990s. So that's on an intellectual level, an important difference in terms of reference points. On a mass level, it's just a different society. In the United States, it's clearly at the moment a far heavier situation than here or in English Canada, both because of the numbers of people who've taken up explicitly fascist politics, 
which again, it's important to say groups like La Meute and the Storm Alliance are racist, but they, they're not fascist, even though some of their members are. In the United States, you have large numbers of people who identify with fascism or who identify with the legacy of slavery positively and who have guns. It's, you know, just a very, very, very intense situation. In English Canada, my impression is that things are very... They're similar to how things might have been in Quebec if we hadn't had the government and mass media pushing Islamophobia for the past 20 years. If we hadn't had a nationalist movement which no longer was orienting around economic grievances and was reorienting to grievances of identity. So you have what had been very small groups, which are now larger, which are emboldened, showing up at school board hearings to intimidate people, to say lies about Muslims, encouraging harassment of Muslim kids in the school system. But my impression, at least from Montreal, is these groups don't have the same kind of resonance that similar groups have in Quebec. You get, you know, small numbers across the country until you hit Quebec, at which point you have hundreds of people. Um, so where do you see this going, Quebec? And, and I guess, what do, you, what do you see as the role of the left right now? I mean, it would be nice to think that we'd be able to neutralize this threat and simply turn it back to how things were beforehand. That's something that, you know, the radical left and others managed to do in the 1990s with far-right groups here. The far-right groups showed up, they tried to organize, and although it took several years, they were smashed. The problem is because of the structural factors encouraging the rise of the far right and of racist politics, and because of the way in which state actors and essentially the mainstream media, not just isolated voices in the mainstream media, have encouraged racism, specifically against Muslims, but also against other people in Quebec for so many years now, in a sense, we're in uncharted waters. And I think the role of the left is to intervene as aggressively as we can, because even if we may not win completely, even if we may not be able to completely stamp out the current far-right upsurge, for one, we may be able to, but even if we can't, our activity may make the difference between this being the provincial government in eight years' time or this being, you know, a lobby group that the various politicians consult with. I mean, areas of Quebec currently are not safe for people to visit if they are identifiably not white Quebecois Christians or post-Christians. But we can make a difference to the extent that that's true, we have to work at cutting the ground out from the feet of the far right. There are real factors at play encouraging the rise of the far right. And on some questions, the far right is closer to reality than the so-called mainstream in recognizing that things aren't going well in society and recognizing that things are actually getting worse from year to year. We have to intervene and we have to basically explain what the reason is why people are sleeping on the street at minus 20 degrees, what the reason is for people being given meals which aren't fit to eat, what the reason is for people not receiving health care that they need. And we have to create a situation that people act in solidarity with other people who are also sleeping on the street at minus 20 degrees, not having meals fit to eat, not having access to health care and who also don't fit within this very narrow white Quebecois identity. Well, Alex, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Is there any group or website, or I'm trying to think of any other random thing that you feel folks listening to this episode should check out? Yeah, I'd encourage folks to check out Montreal Antifascist. So its web address is Montreal-Antifascist, which is like anti-fascist with an E at the end, dot info. <laughs> uh, and there's a number of reports on that website looking at various far-right actors in Quebec. It's definitely one of the two websites I would strongly encourage people to check out. The other is montrealcounterinfo.org. So that's mtl counter hyphen info 
www.anti-fascist.org. And that's a website which has stuff about a variety of struggles, but including the anti-fascist struggle. And I would encourage people listening who are in Montreal to also get involved. There are Every month, sometimes several times a month, there have been anti-fascist mobilizations over the summer, and that's clearly going to be continuing throughout the winter. And we need people to get involved. Well, Alex, thanks again for taking the time. Thank you. Hi there, my name is Alex. I'm a longtime fan of the show and I'm based in Toronto. I wanted to talk about uh, this event that I went to over the past weekend. I've really been trying to focus on building Jewish community. That was one of my goals for 5778. And part of that meant showing up to stuff. And this past weekend, I went to an event at United Jewish People's Order um, that featured intergenerational dialogues. And it was nice to feel sort of grounded in the perspectives of people who had been through similar struggles and had similar intercommunal conversations and took similar stances. Um, it's really important at this time, as in every time, but I feel especially important in this political moment, um, to be firmly in solidarity with people according to terms that may not always make immediate sense to us, but make sense to those who are actively engaged in struggle against imperialism. So with that sort of charge, I'm excited to push farther into this new year, and I'm really hopeful for what it will bring for the Jewish community. So my name is Huda Asal. I'm a historian and a sociologist. I did mainly my research on the history of Arab immigration to Canada. It was a PhD that was published as a book last year, Se dire Arabe au Canada, so it's in French. And after that, I did many research on the questions of discrimination, racism, Islamophobia mainly. And that's it, I guess, for, for now. <laughs> uh, so thanks so much for coming on the show. Part of the reason that we asked you on the show is because we're working on an episode that tries to engage with the history of Islamophobia in Quebec. And uh, before before we get into it and we get into the history, uh, I just wanted to try to maybe define the terms a bit. Can, can you maybe talk a bit about how you think Islamophobia as a concept relates to anti-Arab racism and how, how you think we ought to understand that relationship? Yeah, sure. So... Anti-Arab racism is maybe more ancient than anti-Muslim racism, just because Arabs came before Muslims, and many of them were uh, Christians, actually, at the time. And maybe the link we can do is the one with Orientalism, which uh, makes a real uh, mix between Islamophobia and anti-Arab and anti-Oriental racism, as Edward Said described very well, which is the vision of European and then North American, of course, way of seeing this whole region that goes from the Middle East and North Africa to India, almost. So there is a link between anti-Arab and anti-Muslim racism, but it's not always the same population and people who are targeted by each one. And we were talking about this a little bit before we started recording, but I've always felt like the term Islamophobia is a complicated term. Um, could you talk a little bit about that term and your your comfort with it and, and why you use it or why you don't use it? Sure. sure. So there, there is always a big discussion about the words and the concepts that describes hate or the way of rejecting a population. And it's the same if you think about it with homophobia, anti-Semitism, sexism. They're, all of them have really bad sides of it. Like anti-Semitism is really not a very appropriate word if you think about it like who is Semite and are we really talking about that and racism is the same actually because when we talk about Islamophobia I talk about Islamophobia as racism against Muslims and always people react and say well Islam is a religion it's not a race well black people are not a race either no one is a race a race is a construction that socially takes one aspect of a population and decide that this aspect will be targeted as inferior. So this could be 
the color of the skin, could be the religion, like for Jews and Muslims. And this is how they become a race, actually. So Islamophobia is just the word that was spread in the social science and for activists. Actually, activists used it first, and even Muslim population used it first. And for me, it's very important to take the words that people who are targeted prefer to use. And I feel that in the studies I've seen and how people talk, they, they are very comfortable with Islamophobia. It's actually more the mainstream that have a problem with Islamophobia. Not only, of course, phobia is reductive. It's not enough. Of course, we're not talking only about fear. We're talking about racism. So we're talking about ideology. We're talking about discrimination. We're talking about acts of hate and exclusion. So of course, phobia is just a little part of it. But a lot of the mainstream refuse to use it because they refuse to recognize the phenomenon itself. But I do think that the word is important. We have to define it. We have to say what we put in this word, but I think it's important to use it. Um, so in, in reading through your work, one of the things that I found was that you wrote about how the term Islamophobia was really only popularized in a mainstream way in the mid 90s. And it made me think about the way that Islamophobia and the history of Islamophobia is often talked about in Quebec. We usually start talking about 9-11 or the reasonable accommodation debate. But I'm curious about where you think we should be starting when talking about Islamophobia in Quebec and, and the history of it. It's, it's a, always a very good question to try to find the genesis, the, the beginning of a racist tendency in a country. But it's always difficult to answer like with one date or one turning point. 9-11 uh, is, is, is very important, of course, because it's a global change in the world. And it shows you how international questions and internal questions will mix in a different way in each country. So in Quebec, of course, you're going to have questions around laïcité that are super different in even Canada or the U.S. Uh, for, for our U.S. listeners, would you mind actually de defining that concept? The laïcité? Oh, my God. Well, it's just the... But it's very difficult because it, it means many things, laïcité. Strictly, it's the separation between anything that's religious and the state. So in Quebec, it's quite complicated related to the fact that the church was super, super linked to the political power for so many years, for forever, actually, in the colonial history of Quebec and the French who colonized the country. The church was always there. And after the 70s, there is this big separation. So, of course, now we have still many symbols. We have the cross that is in the in the parliament. Uh, mainly lately, it's really the, the question of Islam that's considered as problematic. I don't think it is, but it's always the debate about religious signs in any workplace, for example. Um, I don't know if I answered the laicite at least. Yeah, for sure. But in terms of the, the sort of pre-9-11 history of yeah. Islamophobia in Quebec, uh, are there moments or uh, situations that you think are not properly understood in, in the mainstream discussions around this? So yes, maybe if we get back to history, we can say that first we had Orientalism. Let's say the Middle Eastern region was seen in a way that's Orientalist, as it was described again by, by Edouard Said, but those stereotypes concerns Christians and Muslims. So you, you already have this mix between the two. So Islamophobia could date even in Orientalism and 19th century. But Muslims were really few in numbers in Canada. The people who were here were more Arabs, so the stereotypes and the racism was more related to Arab stereotyping, like the Palestinian image of the terrorist and then the pan-Arab stigmatization of those populations. And Islamophobia comes more in the, I would say more in the 90s in Quebec, but it's very difficult to date. We know that in the 90s already we have some debates about the veil, but mainly it's after 9-11, I have to say. So after 2001, you have more and more debates. One of the most important turning points would be the reasonable accommodation debate that really put in public all those discourse about Islam that we never heard before. And since then, it never stopped. Like there was the Charters of Value that was super important in Quebec as a big public debate. Now we have this new uh, Law 62 about, again, the niqab or reasonable accommodation again. But each debate has very important effects on the ground concerning discrimination, violence, stigmatization, the way people feel when they leave 
in this country, how they are hired or fired <laughs> or just harassed in the street. I'm thinking of women who wear the hijab, who are really, really badly treated. Each time we have a debate, the day after a woman can tell you, oh, I was harassed, I was insulted, I was threatened. And those effects are very difficult to analyze and evaluate, but they exist. And it's for me the biggest problem, actually, of all those debates. So you touched on this a few minutes ago, but there's clearly a nexus between the laicite argument or the the ideas that stem from laicite and Islamophobia in Quebec, at least the last 10 or 15 years. Like there's that clear overlap. One thing that I think never gets mentioned enough by the proponents of laicite are the fact that we are in a Christian uh, nation state, (laughs) or at least that the country was founded on these ideas that are still that still impact us, whether it's in the legal system or in school system to a certain extent. So could you talk about this intersection between laicite and Islamophobia in Quebec? And, and I'm sure you have to refer to France to a certain extent, but like how do those two things relate to one another today? I don't think it's a religious discussion we're having. I don't think we're having a problem with the place of religion in society. I do think we have a problem with one category of population that we decided were called Muslims, but actually they're called Muslims because they come from countries with whom we have, or Canada have, not me, but who <laughs> Canada have international relations that are imperialists. And this is something we cannot forget. It's very important to see that it's the same, the same population. Then, of course, you have a feminist movement that think only of Muslims as the new oppressive religious group and you see it when you analyze discourse in the media that's always coming with like the situation abroad like oh if we have headscarf here it's going to become like Algeria oh it's going to become like Afghanistan and actually we call the niqab burqa why do we call the niqab burqa like we don't have any burqa here it's just it's in Afghanistan and we're doing the war in Afghanistan so the real problem is always that we think Muslims as foreigners as a foreign religion It's really a way of seeing this religion as a problem as a whole. Just to put the the current violence, uh, which is focusing on on migrants to Quebec, I'm wondering if you can talk about the different waves of migration that you talk about in your book and, and whether different waves of Arab migration in the past also received this violence or is this something new? So it wasn't the same violence, I would say. It's it, it really expressed in, in many different ways, depending on the period. So at the beginning, when they came at the end of the 19th century, in the racial hierarchy, at this time, I would say they were in between. They were seen in a way that was more positive than Chinese or Indians or Blacks. But it was a, a worse than being from Europe, mainly Eastern and South Europe. And some of them were called actually Black Syrians, It was really the Orientalist look on on them, even by the authorities. So you have the anti-immigration laws against all the Asians. And so the Arabs couldn't come anymore. And after 1967, the immigration laws in Canada were more opened. And after the 80s and the 90s, you're going to have all this flow that's coming from the conflicts in the region. And after the 1990s, you have coming from North Africa more and more Muslims amongst those Arab population. But in 1976, I hope I'm not mistaken, just before the Olympics were hosted to Montreal, the Globe and Mail said, well, we have an information, a very secret information that Arab groups will come to do a terrorist act against the Olympics. Fake information. So The Globe and Mail leaked this information that was totally wrong, defamatory, whatever you want. But in the way it was describing Arab-Canadian activists, there was a whole framing of all this suspicion that you have violence coming from abroad with complicity from people inside. And those people inside were recognized as the most important activists we had at this time in the Canadian Arab Federation and other very well-known groups. So it was a big shock for the activist scene, for the Arabs, because many of them had problems at work. Many of them were recognized. They were in small city where they say, oh, there is this guy who will host a tourist. But what is very interesting in it is that you have all the ingredients you can have now of 
how you're afraid of someone coming from outside, how terrorism and violence could come inside, how we have to be suspicious of people who are here and you never know if their alliances with abroad and some violent thing could happen. Today, when you're a Muslim woman who wear the hijab, for example, all of my research shows that going public, you're always very, very much targeted and threatened, like on an individual basis and publicly by media. You see that many people who work on the subject, you just Google their name and they are in those, you know, far right lists. So it wasn't exactly the same at this time, but I mean, all this media, how the media played, how the suspicion play and how it also repress and uh, has a cost when you are active in some situation, I think is, is very interesting to remember. So throughout those those different waves of migration, I guess what, I, what I'm interested in is what you think we can learn from the experience of those Arab migrants experiencing racism in Quebec that is relevant to our current moment in relationship to Islamophobia. Like what do you think the what do you think the relevant moments and the relevant lessons are? One of the things I tried to focus on in my book is how they identify themselves first and how they organize as groups, like around churches, around political groups, etc. But I was also interested in how they were active politically, how they mobilized. It's very important to always look at the history of how each group that was targeted by racism, I'm thinking of indigenous population, I'm thinking of black communities, and all those communities that were victims of racism, how they resisted and how they react in history is very important to understand how today they can react again, and how there is a continuity also in the way they were repressed in the country. So for the Arab, the people who were identifying as Arabs, at the beginning, when I was saying there was a, the anti-Asian laws, they tried to organize against those laws, lobbying towards the government, asking them to be put out from the Asian category. The problem is the way they organized at this time was very legal. They didn't do links with other communities that were fighting against those discrimination uh, laws, like the Chinese, the Indians. The question is, is it more strategic for a group to fight his small little uh, struggle and to be able maybe to have a small victory or to fight all together and it's going to be a longer fight, but we're going to be more strong. The other thing I've, I really analyzed in my book is, the again, the, the Palestinian struggle. And the way they were trying to fight for the Palestinian cause was very difficult for them. And this is maybe the, the lesson we can learn. And I think it's very important for activists today to remember this history because they were very much profiled. They were very much surveilled. And this is how you know that some struggles are very sensitive. Sensitive because you have a lot of interest for the Canadian government. They were really watching them. And they were even more watching them because they were related to some Quebecois movement. They were very progressive and leftist. So you see also that some alliances could make you a bit of harm, even if it makes you stronger. So it's also a choice we have to make. Mm -hmm. There's a cost in becoming activist when you are from a targeted minority, more than when you are white and an ally. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. And for people who are interested, to Francophone listeners, your book, Sudir Arab au Canada, which, how would we translate that in English? I don't know. I, I'm, I'm working on an English <laughs> version and we're going to work on it. But Sudir is really how to identify and how you say yourself, like how you name yourself as an Arab, because I don't want to put an identity of people on people if they don't want. Well, thanks again for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you. He shoots, he scores! It's time for Shkoyach. Shkoyach! Shkoyach. Shkoyach. For those tuning in for the first time, uh, Shkoyach is our critically acclaimed segment in which we give a thumbs up or a thumbs down to an individual, a group, an action, mm -hmm. or just a general sentiment. Yeah, welcome. Uh, it's many people's favorite time of the show, <laughs> but Sam... Yes, David. What is your shkoyach for the week? Okay, I have two shkoyach. I have one central shkoyach and then a pre-shkoyach, which are unrelated. Okay. So I'm kind of taking up a little more space today. I'll allow it. 
There's nothing in the rule book that says you can't have two. That's true. Uh, so what do you have for us this week? Okay. Uh, Mini Square One goes to the children's television program, Arthur. The Halloween episode, Arthur and the Haunted Treehouse. Oh, I've never seen it. Neither have I, but I read an article about it. You, you're giving a square <laughs> to something you haven't actually watched? <laughs> well, that's why it's a mini square. It's just like uh, I like the concept of the episode that I read an article about, and, okay, okay. and I might watch it. Um, so basically, Francine, Francine Frensky, the Jewish member of Arthur, is trick-or-treating in her apartment building. She knocks on the door of an elderly woman who has like a European accent, invites her inside, and the woman shows her a photo of a golem. And she says she took it herself, and she begins to tell the whole story the golem story. Oh, so it's like a golem episode. Apparently they don't follow the golem story super by the books, but they introduce it to the Arthur audience. So it's sort of like a co-optation of the golem mythology into the world of Halloween? In the Arthur universe. Yeah, I wonder I, Like, I wonder if there's ever any consideration about including the golem in that series of universal monster movies. Mm, I don't know really what you're talking about, David. Like, like Dracula. You know, like the universal like Freddy Frankenstein's Kruger? monster... There is a movie about a mummy. I'm, I'm afraid of horror movies, David. I mean, they're not really scary. Uh, the last scary movie I saw was The Sixth Sense. Okay, did you ever see Mel Brooks's uh, Young Frankenstein? I have not. Oh, wow. Maybe Trey should have a movie-watching uh, episode. Yeah, apparently. Well, not episode, but maybe event. Um, <laughs> but how did they change the Golem story? So once again, I have not watched this uh, film. <laughs> so one sec. Um, but from what I understand, it is a violinist who broke his hands and then uses the pieces of the violin to make a golem. So it's a kind of like a little bit of a detour. The point of the story being, Shkoyach to the writers on Arthur, and I very much look forward to watching this episode. I'm a little suspicious, to be honest. Please tweet at us if I was completely off the mark, and this is a terrible Shkoyach. Um, but you said you had a second one, too? Oh, I have a substantial Shkoyach. Okay. And... I kind of like went deep into this story and then I couldn't get out. And so it started out funny. Then it got depressing and racist. And now I'm just stuck with a ton of information that I want to share with you. Is this related at all to that hat that we saw uh, yesterday when we were walking from that interview? Uh, no, it has nothing to do with the Montreal city hat, which I believe <laughs> my partner coined that term. And somehow there's a store on a major street in Montreal that has that term on a hat. But no, this has nothing to do with that. No, this has to do with the nation state of Italy. Oh, okay. The sport of football and one Anne Frank. Huh, okay. Have you heard about any of this? I'm familiar with the country of Italy. Mm -hmm. I am familiar with Anne Frank, and I begrudgingly will say that I also know what football is. Okay, so this all starts with two soccer teams. Mm -hmm. One of them is called Lazio, and the other is called Roma. And they're both Italian? Yeah, yeah. This whole fiasco starts when Lazio fans, big Lazio heads, go to the Roma Stadium and they post stickers of Anne Frank. What? Wearing the Roma jersey. Why? So I only found this cited on one website, but apparently Roma is associated with being left wing and Jewish. So it's a Jewish team. It's not a Jewish team. Maybe the neighborhood that the soccer team started in 80 years ago or 90 years ago is Jewish. I don't actually know. But the meat of the story continues. So let me keep going. So basically, soccer teams usually have uh, ultras, which are the like super fans. We might know them as hooligans, depending on the context. Hooligans? Yeah, yeah. There's like a, it's a name for like European soccer thugs, basically. People call them hooligans? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, I believe they self-identify. I don't know. <laughs> so Again, David, we're getting lost in the weeds. So Lazio fans had already been punished for anti-black racism and Lazio has a history of having, how should I say this, a sympathy towards the Nazi orientation. Oh. Um, not a good situation. So how does the Italian Sports League deal with this? What do they do? They require that all teams read a passage from Anne Frank's book before every game. <laughs> so before the game, it's like part of the game? So yes, each team was supposed to read a passage from Anne Frank. And then the referees were given a copy of Primo Levi's books. Whoa. And were supposed to give it to kids in this like ceremonial way of like passing down the knowledge of the Holocaust. Wow. So this is like a formal effort. The president of Lazio says that his club is going to bring 200 fans to visit Auschwitz every year, do like a whole commemoration or whatever. They're really going all out. However, when they started reading Anne Frank at the first Lazio home game, some fans, like these ultras, were singing fascist songs and making uh, Nazi salutes oh, during the diary reading. Because mm, the fans didn't agree. The fans didn't agree. And the opposing team that they were playing against turned their backs and were singing the Italian national anthem. Oh, wow. So 
the president of Lazio, who's now already committed to reading Anne Frank before every game and sending 200 fans to Auschwitz, has decided that his players would wear Anne Frank t-shirts. Just keeps upping the ante. <laughs> and the shirt says no to anti-Semitism on it with a picture of Anne Frank. Wow. So this is a live story. Um, <laughs> what do you think's coming next, Sam? I have no idea. I don't know. There, there are a bunch of layers to this. Like, obviously, anti-Semitism in Italy is something that Italians could probably tell us more about. I don't want to minimize that. It's a thing. I'm, I don't, yeah, I didn't know. It seems like they have to do something with those fans. Yeah, and it seems like... Yeah, and it seems like just putting Anne Frank on other items of clothing and or stickers and or books is not really like getting to the heart of the issue, even though it's a nice PR move for Lazio president. What is the heart of the issue here, Sam? Um, again, no, no expert on Italy. I hope that someone in Italy is listening and could give us more context. Italy. Italy. However, my anti goes to the fans of Lazio and um, other fans who somehow feel like Soccer is a good venue to express your fascist sympathies and to promote the Nazi history and the history of, I would assume, Mussolini uh, during the Second World War. I mean, this just reinforces my feeling that uh, organized sports of all kinds are inherently uh, crypto-fascist in some respect. (laughs) So with that being said, given one and a half schoyachs here, David, what do you bring to the table today? So my shkoyach for today is going to a reporter named Jennifer Yang. I don't know if you're familiar with her work. I am. She is a reporter for the Toronto Star. Yeah, she's their identity and inequality reporter. And recently she had a story about a Toronto imam named Ayman al-Kaswari, who was widely condemned uh, for anti-Semitic hate speech after a video of him was spread around by far-right media groups like The Rebel and, and a Jewish website called CIJ News. It was said to show him preaching for the killing of Jews. And as a result of this, he was fired from his job at Ryerson. The entire infrastructure of the institutional Jewish community went after him. It became a mainstream media story. Yeah, I mean, he was he was temporarily fired from the mosque that he was working at in downtown Toronto. But uh, Jennifer Yang wrote a long-form investigative piece in which she contacted five separate Arabic translators, and, and they took a look at the video. And it turns out that the far-right wingnut that ran CIJ News created what one of the translators referred to as a propaganda translation, where he actually edited different parts of the speech together to make it seem like he was preaching for the killing of Jews, when in fact he wasn't. And at no stage of the campaign against him, whether it was mainstream media organizations, whether they were advocacy groups, no one bothered to check the video. However, there was one diligent member of the Toronto Jewish community who intervened. Oh, yeah. So I, I guess I should uh, give an additional shkoyach to Bernie Farber, uh, who we've had on the show previously. And we're hoping to talk with him about this story, too, who El Kaswari actually reached out to through a mutual friend. And in, and in just meeting him, he said he had a gut reaction where he said he were not dealing with a racist or an anti-Semite. And it seems like Bernie Farber really went to bat for him. He said to the star that he does not believe that he is a hateful person. So Shkoyak, uh, both to Jennifer Yang and to Bernie Farber, for getting the truth out and going to bat for this person who was the recipient of what I would describe as a racist attack. Mm. So Shkoyak for setting the record straight in a time where news is filled with dreck. Cutting through uh, hashtag fake news. <laughs> um, but I, should, I don't even want to use that word anymore. But I think I should also give an anti Shkoyak to uh, the Center for Israel Jewish Affairs and B'nai B'rith Canada who refused to change their position on this. They've actually doubled down on their attacks against him and refused to apologize. Yes, they also refused to acknowledge any of our tweets. (laughs) (laughs) About this exact issue. Uh, So, uh, shkoyach to Jennifer Yang and to Bernie Farber, and anti-shkoyach to the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs and to B'nai B'rith Canada. And solidarity with Eman al-Kasrawi. So that's our episode for today. Uh, If you're interested in more of the recent context for Islamophobia in Quebec, we actually did an episode shortly following the mosque shooting in Quebec City. Uh, Just look through our feed and you can find it there. We have conversations with two local Muslim activists. And stay tuned in upcoming weeks because we have a few stories on the subject that are in the works. 
Uh, if anyone is listening right now from the New York area, I know we mentioned it on a previous show, but we're going to be in New York City on November 9th uh, giving a workshop about anti-Semitism, and we'll be doing that at Columbia University. It's free and everybody's welcome. For details about the event, you can just look at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash podcast, and uh, you'll see the event there. This is also the point in the show where I remind you that it would be lovely if you could leave a positive review on iTunes. Oh, uh, yeah. We haven't gotten one in a while. We have not. Uh, <laughs> this is also the time where we remind listeners that if you can send us a voice memo around one minute long, tell us your name and where you're at, send it to trafepodcast at gmail.com. Yeah, and we'll play it on the show and you can uh, share your thoughts with listeners. Also, if you have some money to spend and you've already given some to a group near you doing important political work, uh, you can give any money you have left over to the Trafe Podcast. We have a Patreon page, patreon.com slash Podcast, where you can support the show by helping covering costs associated with it uh, so we don't have to pay for it out of pocket anymore. Trafe Podcast is Sam Vick and David Zinman. A huge thanks to CKUT 90.3 FM, where we record this podcast under the shadow of the giant cross of secularism and laicite on occupied Ganyagahaga territory. Thanks to our Minister of Design, Claire Hertig, to our social media advisor, Kira Page, to Cadence O'Neill, who designed the website, to Sax Syndrome and SoCalled for the music, and to Ariana Katz, Trafe's staff rabbi. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Trafe Podcast, T-R-E-Y-F, and send us any comments, suggestions, or hate mail to trafepodcast at gmail.com. More episodes soon. Someone, I don't know if this is true. <laughs> this is a, That's great, a great way, way to start a story. Great way to start anything. Did you see that? Um, did you see that Facebook comment where someone was like, that's what they mean with the cross on on the mountain there's actually a cross on the mountain no it was so funny and i was like oh shit this joke literally never landed for anybody